the estimates vary, uh, you know, but Brian Christie, um, a reporter for National Geographic, had a, a very comprehensive article last October on, on the poaching crisis. And, you know, he, he put it at about 25,000 elephants a year right now. I've seen estimates as high as 40. So, you know, 30-ish might be a good number. You know, 25 to 30,000, that's a lot. And, and if you look at the total population, which is somewhere around 470, what that means is if we're killing 25 or 30,000 years, we have 15 or 20 years to do something before elephants are gone. And that's that's not very far away. You know, I have I have a two-year-old, and it'd be nice for him to someday be able to, to see elephants uh, in the wild. My name is Kevin Uno, and uh, I'm a postdoctoral research scientist uh, at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University. Um, but I should add that all of this work was done when I was a, a graduate student uh, at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Samantha Thomas. As you heard at the top of the show, our guest today is Dr. Kevin Uno. Dr. Uno is a postdoctoral research scientist at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University. He has a big new paper out in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Dr. Uno joined us and talked about his work on carbon, ecology, elephants, and conservation. Dr. Uno is a geochemist who has used different isotopes of carbon to investigate both the ecology and the age of different samples. Most carbon has six protons and six neutrons, and because six plus six is 12, is referred to as C12. However, carbon can have seven or even eight neutrons instead of the more typical six. These isotopes are called C13 and C14. C13 and C14 can be used by scientists in very different ways, and Dr. Uno has used both isotopes in some pretty fantastic experiments. That's right. For example, C13 is a stable isotope of carbon, and the ratio of C13 to C12 is stable across time. However, the ratio of C13 to C12 can change during photosynthesis, and that change is dependent on the specific pathway the plant in question uses to conduct its version of photosynthesis. For example, leafy plants tend to use one specific photosynthetic pathway, while grasses tend to use a different pathway. The result of this is that leafy plants often have a different ratio of C13 to C12 than grasses. Here's Dr. Uno describing how he made use of this difference in some of his papers. We like to go back in the fossil record and, and, and try to understand what past environments looked like. What was the vegetation like? Um, what was the hydroclimate like, like precipitation, or was it humid or arid? Um, these are all important things when we're studying uh, the, the paleoecology 
of these ancient environments. And in particular, I work um, in East Africa on, on hominid environments. So these are the, the environments of our ancestors. And some of the key questions are, uh, what was there, what were climate conditions like and how might have changes in climate um, through time, particularly the last four million years when, when most of hominid evolution took place, how, how could those have potentially driven um, key evolutionary events? In East Africa, at least, um, carbon isotopes can tell you if an animal was a grazer, so something, an animal that eats grass, like a zebra, or a browser, like a giraffe, which uh, browses leaves and, and um, things from the trees, shrubs, things like that. So differences in isotope ratios get carried up the food chain, and by looking at the ratio of C13 to C12, scientists like Dr. Uno can tell whether an animal was a grazer eating grasses or a browser eating leaves. Dr. Uno has used the C13 to C12 ratio for several big papers, but he uses a different carbon isotope, C14, for his current work. Here's Dr. Uno talking about how he uses C14 for radiocarbon dating in his current work. In this particular study, we use radiocarbon dating, um, but it's different than the radiocarbon dating that I think most people uh, are, are familiar with or have at least heard of. Um, and in that case, the traditional way, you look at the radioactive decay, which is... Uh, a constant decay of, of carbon-14 over time, whereby you know some amount of carbon, uh, say in a bone, declines by half over something like 5,700 years. So every 5,700 years, you lose half the carbon. In this case, what we're dealing with is um, radiocarbon that was produced in the atmosphere um, through high-energy explosions, um, namely above-ground nuclear weapons testing in the Cold War era, the 50s and 60s, and so. Um, we, we essentially doubled the concentration of, of radiocarbon in the atmosphere. So there's this big spike between uh, oh, about 1955 when testing really started to ramp up and then 1963 it was banned, so testing ends. So there's a big spike in those you know, eight years or so. And since then, the level of radiocarbon in the atmosphere has been slowly declining. And then the decline is not radioactive decay, but it's actually just the Earth sort of soaking up um, what radiocarbon is in the atmosphere. And, and what I mean by that is the oceans take up CO2, they absorb CO2, and um, plants as well, the biosphere, um, absorb CO2. And, and that's really the key to this study is um, when the testing was going on, uh, you know, the IAEA and other organizations, that's the International Atomic Energy Association, they were measuring the radiocarbon levels in the atmosphere because that was a way, in a sense, to detect if people were detonating bombs and they shouldn't be. So we have a really good record of what this radiocarbon concentration was in the atmosphere and that's what constitutes the bomb curve, what we use in the paper to, to, to date these other tissues. So if we know what it looks like in the atmosphere, the radiocarbon concentration, um, then we can measure it in some tissue and, and trace it back to that um, same level in the atmosphere and, and look at the date at which the level was you know, X concentration. And really the key to that is, um, you know, plants take up CO2 during photosynthesis and they make stuff out of it, sugar, starches, you know, broadly photosynthate. And um, that CO2 that they take in contains this radiocarbon from the atmosphere. So uh, a leaf that forms in 1970 will have the same radiocarbon concentration as the atmosphere at that time. And then some animal, let's say elephant, walks along and, and gobbles up that acacia leaf for lunch, then that elephant in turn builds tissues from the stuff that it eats. And 
those tissues, whether it's tusks or hair or muscle, whatever the case may be, um, also contains uh, this about the same radiocarbon concentration a- as the atmosphere. So that's the principle uh, behind this, this dating technique. So to summarize the utility of the different carbon isotypes Dr. Uno uses, the ratio of C13 to C12 in an animal's tissue changes with diet, but the amount of C14 in the atmosphere and consequently in tissues changes with time. However, if an animal takes in C14 by eating plants, or by eating other animals that eat plants, or by eating other animals that eat other animals that eat plants, then the amount of C14 in the animal will stop changing when the animal dies. After all, at that point, the animal stops eating plants. Or stops eating animals eating animals. Yeah, that got old. (laughs) It's easy to see how this might be useful, and it's also easy to see how it might not. Dead tissue rots. Bodies get eaten. But there is one body part that generally doesn't get eaten and doesn't quickly deteriorate. Teeth. Or for elephants, tusks. It's it's really a modified uh, incisor. So those are like our forefront teeth that we used to take a bite out of our sandwich. And... Their incisors grow continuously uh, through their life. And so the tip of the tusk is the oldest part, and the base of the tusk, much of which is actually up in the skull, is the youngest part. And so um, if you cross-cut an elephant tusk like you would cross-cut a tree, you do in fact see um, structures that are uh, in most cases annual. But there's also more, there's more in an elephant tusk than a tree, and that's what's really a fascinating part of this study. Uh, one of my, my co-authors and, and colleagues, Dan Fisher, has been working on these structures uh, in, in tusks of mammoths and mastodons, all sorts of um, proboscideans, which is the, the order, the biological order in which um, elephants belong to. So in addition to the annual growth bands, which you see in, in trees, if you zoom in, and what we do is we make a geological thin section. We, we cut it to like three-tenths of a millimeter, a little slice of tusk, and then we can actually pass light through it and, and look under like a, a regular transmitted light microscope. And what we see are these weekly bands, okay? And then uh, if you zoom in even further, um, you can see daily bands. So within an elephant tusk, there is actually a really uh, wonderful chronometer. So the tip of the tusk is old and the base of the tusk is young. And if you look closely enough, you can see annual, monthly, and even daily rings marking the passage of time in an elephant's tusk. That's kind of cool. And Dr. Uno can do a lot with that information. He can see how long an elephant lived. He can see how fast the tusk grew. And by looking at C13, the stable carbon isotope, he can see how that animal's diet changed over time, and even how those changes correlated with the growth of the tusk. However, if that's all the information Dr. Uno has, that information is essentially floating in time. He might know from an elephant's tusk that the elephant lived for 30 years, but he wouldn't know which 30 years those were. That's where radiocarbon dating comes in. Right. As Dr. Uno told us earlier, the amount of C14 in the atmosphere changes with time, and those changes are reflected in tissue. If you know how much C14 is in a particular ring of an elephant's tusk, you can use your knowledge of atmospheric C14 to date that ring. It sounds clean and simple, but science is rarely clean and simple. We asked Dr. Uno how he confirmed that the type of radiocarbon dating he does works for the samples he uses. To actually um, validate the radiocarbon method, what we did was um, we went into museum collections, um, like at the Field Museum in Chicago and uh, the the National Museum in, in Nairobi, the Kenya National Museum, and you know these museums keep really great records of, of the specimens they have there, and so 
for a lot of things like um, primate pelts that they have in, in these collections, they say, oh, this, this animal was collected or basically shot uh, in many, many cases on such and such date. So we have an independent verification of the date of death of that animal. So then uh, we simply got a little bit of hair from the pelt, or we also use things like oryx horn or um, teeth in some cases. And we always sample near the base of whatever the tissue is because that's the most recently formed. And so we know the age of death independently, and then we measure the radiocarbon concentration, and then we put that on the bomb curve, just the concentration, and then we also use the date that we know, and lo and behold, these dates fall right on the atmospheric bomb curve. And to us, that was the evidence we needed to say, look, this method works really well for a variety of tissues uh, for determining the age of that tissue. And again, an important point is if you sample the base of the, of the tusk or, or the lowest part of the tooth when it's still forming or the base of the hair, like the stuff coming out of your head today, then, then that gives you the, the date of, in many cases for these animals, that's the date of death. So now Dr. Uno can take a piece of ivory and with no other information, figure out when the elephant that grew that ivory died. That turns out to be hugely important because trafficking recently collected ivory is now generally illegal. For Asian elephants, that happened in 1976, and, and for African elephants, they were listed in 1989. And so since 1989, um, international trade of ivory has been banned. But depending on the country, in some cases, it's still illegal if you do interstate trade, but sometimes it depends if uh, the ivory has worked or not. So if it's been turned into, say, a statue or a handle for your gun or your knife, whatever the case may be, versus raw. So... Um, there are many, many intricacies uh, depending on the country, but really international trade was banned for African elephants in, in 89. So that's why this, this, this dating method is so important is because it just so happens that the age of the ivory is really important in whether, whether trade is legal. So if ivory was collected from an African elephant prior to 1989, you can legally trade it. But prior to Dr. Uno's work, there was no way of determining when ivory was collected. That is an enormous loophole. And that's why Dr. Uno hopes his method quickly gets adopted. You know, that's something that we're really hoping uh, with this method. You know, as a scientist who does a lot of sort of um, past climate work and, and, you know, it's pretty esoteric research. You know, it's like I care, but, you know, who else cares? My, my parents kind of like start to look glassy-eyed when I explain what I do for research and, and a lot of my friends and family for that matter. So this is something that, that this is a, an avenue of research that I think is, has real world application. And so for us to be able to, to help get this method uh, more widely used is, is really important. And so we're talking with um, some NGOs, but also um, what we'd really like is for, for larger organizations, international organizations, um, to be able to help step in and support and build infrastructure to make this um, analysis of, of potentially illegally traded animal parts um, just a commonplace tool. It's unfortunately not enough just to have an awesome new assay, however. To implement Dr. Uno's method, you need something else. Money. Testing ivory by Dr. Uno's method requires less than a pinch of salt's worth of ivory, but more than a pinch of salt's worth of money. It costs about $500 to run a single sample through Dr. Uno's process. However, Dr. Uno pointed out a number of reasons why that cost shouldn't be prohibitive. I guess in my mind, I really don't see this as, as that expensive. I mean, um, the, the 
international illegal trade of wildlife parts is is estimated uh, somewhere on the order of billions of dollars. I read something the other day, $19 billion. Uh, it's a really hard number to quantify. It's hard to get the legal trade of, of animal parts um, well quantified. But let's just say this is a multi-billion dollar uh, industry. And so $500 is, is a really um, small, small price in comparison. And you could also look at it as, you know, losing our world's elephants, which is basically priceless and, and um, 500 bucks, you know, a sample is, is pales in comparison to what it would be like to, to live in a world without elephants. So um, I really don't think cost uh, should be a big hang up. And, and I also don't think that, that the African nations where these elephants are being poached um, should bear the brunt of that cost. I mean, they're not the ones buying the ivory. Um, it's developed countries like you know China, parts of Southeast Asia, even the U.S. There's, there's high ivory consumption here still. Um, some of it legal, but some of it not. And, and a lot of it depends on when, when the ivory or the tissue was formed. So how old is the ivory? And, and I think that's where this method is, is so valuable is to date. We haven't had a good method, really no method to my knowledge, to say how old a piece of ivory is. So while determining the legality of an ivory sample might cost $500, that money might buy a lot more time for elephant populations around the earth. And that $500 looks a lot smaller when it's coming from developed nations importing billions of dollars of illegal animal parts rather than the developing nation doing the exporting. Having tests like Dr. Uno's can also help governments and NGOs save time, manpower, and money while boosting efficiency. One particularly promising opportunity comes from coupling Dr. Uno's method with another forensic approach. There are other forensic tools out there. There's um, a, a DNA method which tells us where the ivory came from. So that's kind of a region of origin tool. And that was developed by um, Sam Wasser uh, at the University of Washington. Um, and that's been really powerful like in, in trying to understand where the ivory is coming from. So where are the poaching hotspots? And so... Our method of, of figuring out when the ivory uh, was was um, or, or when the, when the animal was killed gives us sort of this where when combination or when and where combination that I think would be really uh, a powerful forensic tool. So we've been talking with with um, Sam Wasser's group at the University of Washington to sort of team up and, and work on some of um, these problems of of identifying poaching hotspots, but now with the temporal component because that's going to be sort of a moving target and. Uh, you know, where poaching hotspots pop up and, and to be able to detect those um, through tracing seizures um, will, will, I think, help us be able to say, hey, this is the place where you can now focus um, anti-poaching efforts because it's a really limited resource. These are truly boots on the ground in, in parts of Africa. Um, and so we need to know how to allocate that that resource as best we can. Earlier in the show, Dr. Uno mentioned that he wanted his two-year-old to be able to see elephants still living in the wild. I also have a toddler, she's almost two now, and I too want her to grow up in a world where elephants still roam free. But sentimentality like that isn't the only reason to want elephants around. They're often considered what's called a keystone species. Um, and, and what that means is they're really important in, in whatever ecosystem they occupy. Um, and so, for example, elephants in East Africa, um, well, any elephant really is... is um, a great shaper and, and modulator, let's say, of the landscape. I mean, they can they can knock down trees with the push of their trunk, and so they uh, are are responsible for land use change in over 
you know, millennia or millions of years in, in different parts of Africa. So they can change the landscape. Um, they travel great distances, um, pooping the whole way, so they can disperse seeds over long ranges um, in the past. And even today, there are some trees that have um, extremely large seeds. Um, they're called gomphothere fruits, and, and those are only distributed by elephants because they're the only ones with a big enough, you know, mouth and gut to eat these things and, and then poop them out and distribute them them around. So um, they're they're key in any ecosystem. Um, they're key even today in, in tourism. Um, you know, they're one of the big draws to why people go on these safaris, and so. Without them, I think we'd be uh, living in a, in a very different world. One of the things I found most fascinating about this interview is how many of the same techniques used to investigate ancient hominid ecology can be applied to contemporary problems, and not just modern ecology, but also conservation issues. It's another example of seemingly basic research quickly becoming applied science. And this has been another example of the Grok Science Show. Our guest today was Dr. Kevin Uno, a postdoctoral research scientist at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University. Dr. Uno has a new paper out in the journal PNAS. If you're interested in hearing more from the Grok Science Show, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. You can also download archived episodes from iTunes, archive.org, the Public Radio Exchange, and our own website, groks.net. For this episode of the Grok Science Show, and for Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and Joanna Rao, I'm Forrest Gordon. And I'm Samantha Thomas. Thanks for listening.